Welcome to the Ecobot Podcast, where we dive into what matters most for 21st century wetland scientists. Throughout this series, we touch on the increasingly important role that technology plays in wetland science. I'm Jeremy Shavey, and on today's episode, we're continuing our conversation about navigating recent changes in wetland policy and the impacts of these changes on the industry. You'll also hear a great Q&A session with our panelists and presenters. But first, let me introduce Jeff Pearson, National Solution Engineer at Esri. I'm excited for his contribution to the wetland policy conversation. Without further ado, please welcome Jeff. Hey everyone, my name is Jeff Pearson. I'm with Esri out in uh, the Denver, Colorado area. Shout out to Florida. My career actually started down in South Florida, uh, just outside of Fort Lauderdale. So I'm very familiar with the wetland landscape down there. I have a strong consulting background with wetlands and waters of the U.S., uh, working for various a &E firms and the federal agencies as well. But most times people wonder what Esri's specific role is in the wetland community. And I think I did a pretty good job with kind of making more of a further connection because of my strong wetland background. And essentially what I'm doing specifically is I consult on kind of the, the actual data storage, all the data curation. Um, if you're manipulating any of the data, all of the data sharing. I also consult on wetland procedure and protocol. Right now I'm, I'm currently on the national team. So I'm consulting with Department of the Interior, Army Corps, Department of Energy, Forest Service, BOR. So basically any of the major land management agencies, right? So we also like to partner with very innovative companies like Ecobot that are innovating the wetland field. We are trying to create a further initiative for the one federal decision that the White House came out with a few years ago. So that was a big priority for us. We like to come up with new ways to streamline processes, both when you're out in the field doing work and back at the office. So when you're collecting all that data, how should you be doing your data management and all of your analysis as well? I like to build new apps for wetland professionals uh, to use for the different workflows and all the processes if you have any imagery and we also like to help our customers such as the regulators and the federal agencies understand all that data and how that technology can assist them with whatever it is that they're trying to do so specifically what we are doing with the wetland science and policy right you can see you know we have a lot of executive orders that wind up sneaking in. Some of them aren't as publicized as others. One of the biggest things I wanted to kind of throw out there is that a lot of the authoritative data sets don't typically change based off of policy. It changes off of science, such as the National Wetlands Inventory or the NHD uh, or any of the other water type of the actual GIS data. All that is based off of science, right? So the actual data schemas, all of the data migration and all that stuff, it's super important, right? But the best data that you could possibly play with is ones that you actually collect yourselves, right? 
I know that there are a lot of wetland pros in right now. So I'm sure you guys are using Trimbles and Garmin's and, you know, hopefully Ecobot, right? When you're actually out in the field and collecting that actual data. So when you're navigating the wetland policy with specific data sources, um, it's important to use the actual open source data because you don't want to spend a whole lot of money, right? It can get really expensive. And there are a lot of great authoritative sources that come from the USGS or the NRCS of all that soils data. The USGS has the NHD, which is amazing. It's also important to understand what your data is actually doing when you're doing the analysis techniques and how how these new policies impact that data, right? As uh, they were saying earlier, you know, something like the adjacent wetlands or what do they consider, you know, jurisdictional, like the bed banks and, and the benches to streams and, and the rivers and stuff. So it's also important to pull all of your actual data sources into one centralized and editable location. So I know a lot of scientists are still using shapefiles and they're still using, you know, the Excel spreadsheets, but I wanted to kind of do a shameless plug for file geodatabases and enterprise geodatabases. It's just way easier to manage a lot of that, a lot of that data. So I did make a story map on essentially a very basic workflow. It doesn't show a lot of what's going on in the actual background, but this this um, story map does kind of take you through step-by-step step what the data and what the output actually looks like when you're using some of these different models and algorithms. I specifically used a project that is kind of near my house in uh, Colorado called the C470 project. They're, they're already under construction. I think I think they're almost done. It's probably about, I don't know, 10 to 15 mile corridor. And I pulled in um, the National Wetlands Inventory as kind of a basis. Uh, I think uh, when we do a lot of pre-scoping on projects, we use the NWI and then we wind up going out into the field to confirm what's actually there and what's not. This is an executive order that came out of the White House in October. I don't think it had that much traction, but I just, if you actually go through the, the story map, it, it kind of takes you through what this EO actually is. So some field data of the project, you have your ordinary high water mark, you have your benches and you have your banks and you have your actual, the waterway. And so we wanted to see well, what the impacts were under the actual new water rule. And kind of the same thing uh, with what was actually being impacted from the right of way based on the policy from the new water rule in 2015. And then we can see how that's changed. It's about, I think it's about 0.15 acres of difference there. And then when you look at the whole project, um, that actually winds up being multiple acres, which would account for um, millions of dollars of work in the mitigation costs. So I wanted to, um, dive into what the actual data is doing. So I, so when you pull in soils data from the NRCS, and I, and I get a lot of my actual math and the actual algorithms from um, the Society of Wetland Scientists journals that I get quarterly. So it'll typically say what soils there are pertinent for the, the riparian areas and 
how acidic the actual soils are for the hydric soils in the wetlands. So again, I wanted to say that it's way more important to pull data that you're actually getting from the field. And there's techniques that you can use within ArcGIS Pro to interpolate those points to get a more accurate representation of what the actual soil types are. So when you pull in actual elevation data, and this is from the USGS, right? So you essentially want to layer all of this stuff on top of each other because the actual model or the algorithm, you want the output to be as accurate as possible. And without the actual elevation data, it would be very difficult to do that. So when you actually um, put in all of the special parameters for your area and all of your soil types, you it can actually you can actually get a reclassification and an output of where the actual areas are that are going to be most likely to be wetlands or waters of the U.S. or riparian areas. So you have your soil data on top of the actual elevation data, and when you actually run that. Python script or model, it could be either or, you wind up getting outputs of where you can expect to find whatever you need to. If you're looking for high quality wetlands, or if you're looking for, you know, specific bench or the banking types or soil types, you can actually pull these outputs from those specific parameters. And I'm in the process of building a web application right now to where you won't have to use an ArcGIS desktop environment to do this analysis. You should be able to just pop in all of your parameters, put in what you need, and then it should spit out an output that's like this. So the actual data and the actual data schemas are really important when you're doing this because if that data isn't pre-massaged, then it'll throw errors and it'll be very difficult. So I wanted to give another shameless plug to Ecobot because their specific data schemas doesn't really need to be massaged because all of those parameters are already preset when you're looking at that data, as opposed to if you're out there in the field with like a Trimble or a Garmin or something like that. So shameless plug, shout out to those guys. I'll go ahead and post my story map out on my Twitter and on my LinkedIn. So if you don't follow me, please do. And yeah, thanks guys. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Jeff. Uh, also appreciate the time and putting that together. That, that was a really interesting workflow, uh, how you're able to, to quantify uh, the actual areas uh, based on the regulations. And I think that could also be used to see where, where maybe surveys needed to be redone if something changes mid-project. So I, I think that there's a common thread and that is the digitization of data. And it's really important. When scientists and consultants translate biological data into digital data, it can then be used in planning, resiliency, regulatory environments, and all providing additional value beyond that single project. Additionally, and important to point out, in the 21st century, things are data-driven. And if data isn't available, then there's no voice and no representation and no seat at the table for making decisions. So the picture emerging uh, that we see in wetland science is uh, one of interconnectedness and shared efficiencies. So this is the new digital ecosystem where a network of hardware, software, and science works together in the planning and conservation of natural resources. 
Great, thanks, Daniel. And just want to keep this very brief. For those of you who have not met Ecobot yet, iOS wetland delineation forms, automate your PDFs. This is what our customers are doing. They're winning more bids, they're a lot more competitive, and they're a lot more profitable. And pretty excited about this right now. This is our first time building kind of a, the beginnings of a story map with Esri as well. But with over 15,000 sample points across the United States, we're pretty, pretty excited to see how this is coming together. So thank you for all of those of you who have been helping to contribute to better science. Awesome. Uh, now I'd like to transition into uh, the Q&A. Uh, so to kick us off, and, and this was mentioned uh, briefly in, in one of the um, presentations, and, and this is towards Karina. Uh, there's a unique position in Colorado, and, and I was wondering if you could help us to understand uh, in a little bit more detail the moratorium placed on the new navigable waters rule in Colorado, what that means for the industry, for wetlands, and, and for consultants and regulators. Absolutely. Hi, everyone. Um, so as they mentioned, in Colorado, we have an injunction against the current 2020 rule. And what's interesting to me is that we also had an injunction against the 2015 rule. So the 2015 rule was thought to be too overarching that it was trying to regulate too many areas, whereas the 2019 rule is thought to be deregulating too many areas and leaving too many areas in Colorado unregulated. So as you know, the previous speakers have mentioned, the ephemeral channels and the isolated wetlands, which in Colorado is a huge component of what we have in Colorado as our wetlands um, that help feed other systems. So Colorado does not have any kind of state regulating agency right now that protects those isolated channels or um, isolated wetlands or the ephemeral streams. So that was a big contention on how they were able to, to keep that injunction for 2019 going into play. And I've spoken with some of the regulators here in Colorado um, with the Corps, and there's not a current plan on how long the 2019 injunction will be in place. The 2015 injunction um, was in place all the way up until the 2019 rule came into play. And then very quickly, we had the injunction on the 2019 regulation. So Colorado has been working basically off of the 1980 regulations, the Rapanos and the, the other amendments that have been out for decades. So for us, it's kind of, we're just plugging along as we have been previously. I would say the one thing that we're seeing a change is that because we have several districts within Colorado, they all have different standards when it comes to mapping wetlands and delineating for our reports. So the Sacramento district will have new criteria because they're looking at the 2019 rule. So some of those will come into play in Colorado. So I think we'll be mapping things differently and reporting them to the core differently, but we it won't affect our regulations. Great, thank you. There are a lot of great questions that have been coming in, so we're gonna continue our discussion here. The next question is partly a, a hybrid of a couple of questions that came in uh, directed from the audience. And we are, you know, of course, seeing some particular changes in the regulation of waters of the United States. But what 
the uh, question here is, is how are we seeing changes in the mitigation industry? One aspect or one question that came in respect to this was uh, how are previously banked credits in respect to streams, thinking about ephemeral stream uh, credits, how are those gonna be handled by the Army Corps of Engineers? And uh, what other changes are we seeing within this? Victoria, if you could open that one up a little bit. Yeah, I think for future you know, projects, it's gonna reduce the federal regulation needed for sure. I'm anticipating that to be about 15% or so. And like I said, the state will continue to take care of those isolated uh, impacts, but um, have not seen a lot of projects that are currently reserved that have been in for three to six months as far as a reservation coming back and saying they don't need the federal credits anymore. Uh, like I said, we're still early in the game. That could change, but uh, only about one project uh, come back and and the bank is, has no federal credits back. So they're actually going to buy them back and use them for another project, which is good. Okay. Yeah, great. The place that I'm seeing big changes, and I know some of the folks here on the panel have also seen is a slowdown in general concurrence, uh, whether it's PJDs or JDs or any sort of permitting application. And so would love to kind of put that on the table and, and talk about that a little bit. Love to jump back out to Karina and see what, what you're seeing out in Colorado and in the other states that you're working in. So I personally haven't seen an impact as of yet. Um, I think I will start to see one um, as we get more into the next field year. This came along kind of late um, in the season, just for me personally, where I see the biggest difference is that I think we're going to see a shift in clients going from predominantly pre-JDs to more AJDs, unless, you know, we hear these stories of the core taking forever to go through the AJD process. So we might still see clients um, going through that pre-JD process just to expedite the permitting. But I feel like if there are so many areas that are no longer going to be federally regulated, a client's not going to want to go ahead and put the cost of mitigating those areas if that's not a federal regulation anymore. So that's where I see some of the changes occurring. I see more intensive mapping being required when we're out in the field. So I think that's where Ecobot, you know, just a plug for Ecobot again, um, is going to come into play um, just because the core is starting to request that they want nondescript names on any of the mapping, but they want everything mapped. So before, and maybe that just means we're more creative in how we create our project area boundary so that we're eliminating some of those waters um, because it does take a lot of time to map everything when you know that that's not going to be regulated and it's not impacted by your project. So I think those are some of the changes that we're gonna see. Yeah, I know that some other consultants that I have spoken with in recent months have spoken to needing to increase their scopes. I know the intention of the original executive order was to potentially reduce the costs of environmental permitting. And I think we're seeing the opposite of that. And partly I think what we're seeing is that the, uh, the core wants to make sure they're taking care of covering themselves and making sure that everything is recorded. So um, Daniel, what are you, what are you experiencing up in, up in Minnesota? Since the new rule 
took a effect. I've had a few projects go through AJD process and one of them started before the new rule took effect and it was a very long process, six months or more. And then I've had a couple others that were actually very quick because the court immediately recognized they qualified for one of the exemptions and within weeks issued an AJD. So in that regard, that, that was seen faster than, than the old process or under the new old, old rule. But I think, uh, you know, Karina makes a good point about uh, the timeline. So if you are planning project schedules, you probably should be thinking about a longer schedule for, to, for more AJD requests because there's going to be more areas that are not regulated. So it's, you know, it's to the benefit of a, a project developer to get that AJD because they're not paying for extra permitting or extra mitigation costs. Yeah, we've heard uh, from some consultants working down in the Gulf and uh, along in the Atlantic seaboard that some of the AJD process now is ramping up to sometimes a year or more, which is pretty intensive to think about. Yeah, so that's a big hit on the project schedule. Yes, it is. And I've, we've also been hearing about some consultants being requested by you know clients to go back in the field and re-record data and within the context of new waters and you know, seeing if we, they can get something submitted while we're in this this period that we're in right now. Have you have you been requested to get back out in the field at all with that? No, that I haven't no. had that experience. Okay, yeah, it's it seems like it's few and far between, but it's definitely something I've been hearing about a little bit, and it's important to kind of think about and call out. That's kind of why I thought it was more important to to dig into the details on the rule, what the new rule is, what what's the what is the definition of water U.S. And what, what are the uh, exemptions and then understand some of those thresholds with nationwide permits so you can plan to collect all the data up front and then document it appropriately so that, you know, if there are changes, there are questions, you've got that information available. So hopefully you can minimize the risk of having to, to go back out. Great. Well, thank you, Daniel. And thank you, Karina, for weighing in on that. Um, Karina, you had mentioned something a, a moment ago about software and, uh, and kind of how how that can be used with project areas and, and what uh, what data is being gathered. I'd like to, to dive into that a, a little bit deeper and then open that up to, to all of the panelists and, and kind of learn thoughts on how software like Esri, ArcGIS, uh, WebGIS, Ecobot and, and others can help consultants and uh, mitigation bankers uh, meet these changing policy criteria and, and regulatory demands. Sure, so one thing that we're, what I'm encouraging our staff to implement is we, we have a really robust data dictionary that we've created for ArcGIS. So when we're in the field and collecting that data, we're just adding additional columns to define maybe what a reach is considered, but in the field, we'll call it ephemeral so that we have the data. It's, it's in a massive data set, but we can filter that out. We can clean it up for what the core requires when we need to submit um, those aquatic resource data sheets. But if there's a client need, because a client wants to see how many ephemeral channels or how many perennial channels, or they want to know the actual name of the channel that it's called the Cache Laputa River, whereas the core doesn't want to see those names anymore, we still have that data. It's all in one spot. It's just how we're filtering the data so that as Daniel was mentioning, we don't have to go back out into the field and recollect the data. It's just how we're analyzing it. So that's been a big thing for us. And then having software like Ecobot that makes it faster to collect the data when we're actually in the field. 
that makes it a lot easier to adapt to some of these changes because if you have to go out and spend more time in the field, anything that helps expedite that is going to be beneficial. And and when you're talking about adding costs for regulations, um, those are ways to help, you know, kind of offset some of those in some ways. Interesting. I, I think that, that that definitely holds true with, with the pattern that we're seeing of this digitizing data. So, it, you know, it's better to get more data and then you, you never really know how valuable that's going to be because something might change and, and you don't have to go out there again to uh, to get get more. Uh, Victoria, do you have any thoughts on, on this as far as how software can help meet these changes? Not really, although I will say, you know, just polling um, environmental consultants that are using Ecobot, they're saying that it's very helpful for large projects, um, especially if there's a lot of, you know, wetlands that they can kind of um, stamp over it and, and be a lot more quicker and efficient. And so even if you have, you know, one big project, Ecobot would be, you know, beneficial for your project um, to be able to reduce that time and, and be more efficient. That's, that's great to hear. And how about you, uh, Daniel? Any, any additional insights you can offer from your perspective? Well, I'll just reiterate what I said and what, and what Karina said about collecting data. You're collecting lots of data and there's you know, so much flexibility with using a data dictionary and ESRI tools to document that data. And then on the back end, there's a lot of flexibility, a lot of ways to visualize and present the data to export into a, a, a table to put in a report or to create figures where you symbolize things differently. So you you can show you know your wetlands that are totally isolated, your wetlands that are connected with an ephemeral stream, wetlands that are connected or adjacent to an intermittent stream. You know there's documenting all that, then you've got the software that you can that you can show it. So if there are changes in you know whatever in regulations in whatever way, you you're able to adapt and you can be able immediately be able to determine you know, which, which water bodies, which wetlands are regulated or not regulated. So on that note, and th this I think also will go to, to all the panelists, what, what do you, looking forward, do you think are some of the challenges that, that technology is going to face when it comes to compliance? Daniel? Sure. We, I think one of the challenges is that it deals with the connectivity of so, some uh, water bodies. If you recall, when I presented the list of water bodies, it's that the third one said certain lakes, ponds, and impoundments of jurisdiction waters. There's a lot of confusion with that because they're, according to the Corps regulation, the Navigable Water Protection Rule, you know, this term certain is confusing. Well, what is certain? Well, then it says that, you know, some water bodies, some lakes could be jurisdictional if they're just connected through an ephemeral stream that only flows in a typical year that it flows in a typical year. Well, that, that's really confusing to me. Like, well, what if there's an adjacent wetland to that, that lake? If the only connection is an ephemeral stream, but the ephemeral stream's not jurisdictional, but a lake can be jurisdictional through an ephemeral stream, does that, you know, what happens with that adjacent wetland? There, I think that's an area where there's gonna be some confusion and some, it's gonna require, you know, case by case discussion with the core. You know, maybe they've got, maybe the core of engineers has already figured out how to deal with that. I know in the, Navajo Waters first rule was implemented this summer and I was going through an AJD on a project with the Corps and they're like, we don't even know where this is going to go. You know, that's, you know, six months ago. So I'm sure they're come a long way since then. But, uh, you know, that's, that's this whole thing with adjacency or connection of the, of the, of certain lakes and impoundments is a area of great confusion to me still. Yeah, uh, most certainly. Karina, do you have any thoughts on, on the same question? Uh, so what are some of the challenges for technology? 
uh, as, as we kind of move into this, into the future, right? So technology is changing and the, the regulations and policy isn't changing. So we have these two trajectories going, up, going forward. Do you have any thoughts on that? So I think it's going to be a little bit more difficult on the technology side to implement some of these changes. When I think specifically from say Ecobox perspective, they have the wetland determination for it. So all the data gets uploaded into that wetland determination form. But if those sides that are the regulatory side are changing frequent, frequently, then the, the applications also have to change to meet those adaptations. And in the field, it's the science isn't necessarily changing. It's just what's being required from the regulatory perspective that's changing. And so I think that that makes just a, a balancing perspective that you still need to support the science, um, but the end product is, is that regulatory compliance and, and what the core needs and the, the ability to quickly adapt to those changes. Uh, that's where I see the biggest hindrance or complication in the future. Thank you for listening to the Ecobot podcast. If you like what you heard, take a moment to rate, review, and follow along on any podcast app, including the one you're using right now. If you'd like to see how Ecobot can transform your natural resources consulting workflow, find us on LinkedIn or visit ecobotapp.com. I'm Jeremy Shavy, and I'll see you next time on the Ecobot podcast.